Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the prayers that were just prayed. They're perfect for what we're talking about. I'm really admiring of the way in which you're willing to take on, um, all right, this is the easy subject, but um, difference in dignity, and I'll do my very best to, uh, uh, to engage that with you. I, you know, I've never been on an active battlefield, and I never want to be on one. For the sake of his two young sons, no doubt, my father, whoops, there we go. My father, my son, his tank, my dad's tank. Um, my father deflected questions about his combat experience as a tank commander in North Africa in World War II. He'd offer lighthearted stories in their place. The, the one we heard over and over again was brewing up British tea, right? The, they get a chance to stop. The crew would jump out of the tank. They had a jerry can sliced in half, two trays, one on the ground, pour some sand into that. Some poor guy on the crew had to siphon fuel out of the tank, put it in there, light it. The other one went on top with water, throw some tea in, as much time as they could have before they had to go someone else. That was brewing up. I heard that story so many times. It's hard to get my dad to talk about anything else and what they actually did, although occasionally he'd sum it up by saying, well, the war was hours and hours of utter boredom, minutes of excitement, moments of terror. Once in a while, though, he would let slip more riveting images, burned out tanks, British, Italian, German, dead bodies, the dreadful waste in human life, as he always said. I learned that when a tank took a direct hit and the ordnance and fuel exploded, usually killing the crew outright. The tea-drinking British had a grimly humorous term for that, and they also called that brewing up. Politics readily invites warfare metaphors, doesn't it? The combat metaphor's awfully tempting. And politics is, at the best of times, a place of vigorous disagreement. Let's not pretend it's, it's anything but that. And it leads many citizens, of course, in this country and others, to abandon political participation altogether. But however pervasive such images, we should resist the temptation to allow these to define politics or to embrace them at the expense of the vision of government and politics framed by the faith. Such a vision can help us foster ways to manage vigorous disagreement with grace and with respect. Now, I hardly need to tell you that media and politicians thrive on the entertainment value of divisive rhetoric, the mobilization value. They feed on the yawning gulf between Democrats and Republicans that three decades of growing polarization right, have given us. Now, our two-party system's always been capable of polarizing the American people because when you have two parties, you often have a zero-sum assessment of the political process. If my party wins, it does so at the expense of yours. Many a member of Congress inclined to support a piece of legislation supported by a president of the other party has held off for fear they would, that the other party would register a win. These differences have grown over many years. Um, it's a little hard to see, but 
it used to be that the two parties overlapped quite a bit, that the most liberal Democrat and the, excuse me, the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat were actually in positions of a lot of overlap between them. Over the years though, um, 1967 to 68, just a quick illustration, 87 to 88 and the one in the middle, in, one at the bottom, excuse me, was uh, 2007, 2008. I wasn't able to find a really recent one, but now there's clear space between the two parties. That's part of the reality that we have to deal with. Polarization in our political discourse is a serious matter because it suggests to us that the policy options for all these important issues, healthcare and immigration and education, are binary. These are the only ones we've got. The way we package our political appeals often reinforces this. Even innocent appeals to patriotism and the American flag have not so innocent consequences. After all, if this is the patriotic, fully American policy solution, then that must be the work of unpatriotic, not fully American forces. The currency is loyalty or treachery. If polarization were confined to political discourse only, that would be an unfortunate reality. It would pose major challenges. It is very difficult to craft a space for diversity in our society when our politics pervaded by zero-sum partisan combat. But even as we wrestle with this very difficult task, we have to confront an even more uncomfortable reality. And that uncomfortable reality is that polarization isn't confined to the political arena. I'll let Kevin Dendulk of Calvin College deliver some bad news from an article he wrote for Comment Magazine after the 2016 election. I want to stress here, this is sort of the bad news part of what I have to say. There's a lot of good news coming. But Dendolk writes, it would be small comfort if partisanship were limited to the political sphere. We get angry with the political opposition, get some catharsis at the voting booth, and then get along when the election is over. But it doesn't work that way. Polarization doesn't work that way. We tend to use partisan attachments to make an entire range of choices well beyond conventional politics, housing choices, and media, housing choice and media consumption are increasingly correlated with partisan leanings. You'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be surprised to learn that out there in this country, partisan intermarriage is quite rare. It may even affect partisanship where and with whom we worship. Is that a great surprise? The God gap in American politics says Dendulk is not merely a description of how religion shapes our choices of candidates and parties. The direction of influence can go the other way. That is, how political identity shapes our lived experience of faith. And the same thing's happening, in other words, out there amongst the American people as is happening between our two parties. Let's be realistic. When campaigns are pervaded by combat imagery, when the supporters of one candidate chant, lock her up, about the other, and the retort is to say that those supporters are a basket of deplorables, it's very hard to resist the temptation to succumb to the verdict of polarization. But if Dendok is right, it's even more urgent that we confront the danger of reading our friends' and neighbors' other choices through these same partisan lenses. 
which is why I congratulate you for taking this difficult topic on. Because I want to say that what the politicians and the media serve up with this partisan rhetoric, it's like junk food. And like junk food, it's not nutritious. It could perhaps make you intellectually, emotionally, even spiritually obese. You can forget what the real thing tastes like. So today, I want to issue an invitation for political nutrition. What we need is a biblical vision of the purposes of politics and government that can help us approach with grace and respect um, dealing with our deep differences. Let me explain. That's a more attractive image right there. So, the Center for Public Justice, Christian think tank in Washington, D.C., to which I owe a big debt for trying to figure the, these things out over the years, they put it this way, and that's their logo, and this is, I'll read their statement in case that's a little hard to read up there. Government, they write, is authorized by God to promote what is good for human flourishing, for securing the common good, promoting the well-being of an entire society in right relationship with the larger world that God made. The principle of public justice recognizes that much of what contributes to human flourishing is not government's task. This limits the scope of government's work to promoting policies and practices that uphold the ability of other institutions and associations to make their full contributions to human flourishing. Human flourishing, promoting the common good, making room for non-governmental institutions that contribute to human well-being. Government emerges here as important, but not neither more nor less important than Families, business firms, charitable organizations, schools, hospitals, churches. In a real way, government's task is a humble one. Or, as I thought President George Bush put it very nicely, much of the time, government isn't providing direct help, but it's helping the helpers. After all, no fault of government. Government not, is not, by its nature, good at raising families, creating wealth, or extending person-to-person -person care. Nor has government any rightful authority to require families, wealth creators, educators, and carers of all kinds to become extensions of itself, merely some sort of subunits of the state. All of these agencies, including government, are under God's authority for his good purposes. Notice how a gardening image sort of rises to the top. Families, business firms, charitable organizations, schools, hospitals, churches, and yes, governments, together cultivate the created order. This is where I usually say that anyone who tries gardening in New England knows you have to cooperate with your, your thin soil, the abundance of rocks, the late frost, the abbreviated growing season. It's 11 months in the UK where I'm from. And you have to be smart or smart, right? You, <laughs> you don't plant what won't grow. As with gardening, so with governing. You have to pay attention to people and their culture and their history and their pain, and doing it well is not very easy. The biblical vision of government is a vision of cooperative stewardship with ample doses of prudence stirred in. We are stewards of the good but broken creation. 
both physical and human. It's our task to cooperate with what God has fearfully and wonderfully made. I think we find guidance for how to engage politically by looking back to what the Reformed tradition knows as the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, to care for creation, for what God has made, but also forward through the fog that is our sin and our, the human conflict to the renewed creation that Jesus Christ will bring when he reconciles all things to himself. Notice how humanizing this Christian vision is. The human beings made in the image of God, not an isolated individual. Now, we happen to live in a society whose political system plays up the individual. Um, and in one sense, plays up that individual isolation. A bit more on that later. But no, human beings are social beings made in God's image. Jesus' well-known summary of the law reflects this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Family life is natural for us in a created sense, as is life in communities large and small. Of course, I hasten to say, I don't mean this makes it easy, either in families or communities, but we are made for it. In this vision, politics becomes the vital task of choosing from the community those who will guide it, those who will become, in a sense, the... Um, the origin of the word, the steering oar, the governor. Um, and you can see that on there. Um, when candidates are doing what they should, this is what a democratic election can offer. Ideas, assessment of existing efforts, criticisms, and ways of deploying relevant experience for steering and guiding. But there's more. Whether we're looking back to Genesis to understand the human tasks of stewardship, or looking forward to the regained creation at the end of the age, we are linking politics and governing to our hope to Jesus Christ. This is where the really good stuff starts, by the way. The summary of the law is Jesus' summary, and we need to recognize that Jesus himself is the most important interpreter of the means and the ends and the true character of politics and government. Let me explain. The scriptures recognize Jesus as the rightful king in whom God has invested all power and authority in heaven and earth. King. Well, we may be unfamiliar with or even hostile to the ideas of kings in a democratic republic. We, you, even had a revolution to exchange the authority of kings for Republican government by largely democratic institutions. But notice how concerned with governing the scriptures are. Here's an example. So, asked the Pharisees, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And you can imagine them just waiting for that gotcha, beloved of investigative journalists. You know, Caesar, the occupying authority that took this province by force and subjects it to Rome's rule. Caesar, the illegitimate occupier who has God's chosen people under his thumb. Jesus doesn't flinch, but flips the symbolism. Show me a coin, he says. Whose image is on it? Oh, image. Don't make graven images. 
Yes, Caesar is in every way illegitimate in Jewish eyes. Caesar's, they say. And Jesus, the one in whom all authority in heaven and earth is vested, replies, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When the Roman authorities executed Jesus, his dying represented the truest exercise of power and authority. Of course, we've always understood Jesus' death as a powerful act, especially in that most common of Christian declarations, Jesus died for my sins and we are redeemed by his blood. Some churches shout these messages literally from their rooftops. Christ's sacrifice certainly accomplishes nothing less than this. But we're slower, I think, to recognize that the cross accomplishes much more as well. The scale and scope are much greater. Calvary is profoundly political. Jesus was executed by Caesar's representatives under Caesar's authority, and Rome dealt with those it considered hostile with dispatch. Crucifixions were common and public and designed to humiliate, to emphasize that the leader or the movement that had defied Rome was utterly finished. You'll probably recall that Pontius Pilate refused to change the inscription fixed to the cross over Jesus' head, the King of the Jews, to he claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate wouldn't allow the Jewish leaders to dismiss Jesus as a crackpot with personal delusions and to distance themselves from him. To Pilate, the inscription was perfect, and along with the method of execution, made his point with unmistakable emphasis. Here's your king. Scripture doesn't record that the Roman soldiers who supervised the crucifixion reported to Pilate what are reputed to be Jesus' final words. You remember, it is finished. But if they did, there's no reason to suppose Pilate would have heard those words with anything but satisfaction. That's what he wanted to hear. That's what he wanted to have publicly demonstrated. Of course, it was Pilate's world that was turned upside down, but do most of us simply miss the political import of what occurred? Perhaps we should remember to pause at the cross and not rush to the resurrection as if the Gospels teach us that God's Son was temporarily defeated, but it all came out all right in the end. No, the cross was not a hiccup on the way to Jesus resuming his divine power and authority at the end of the age. Far from it. Theologians like N.T. Wright tell us it was and it is the truest exercise of that power and authority. This is a glorious mystery but it is how we're invited to know the love of God, the depth of the love of God. This is how we know that Christ the King is the Lamb of God, that Christ on the cross is Christ being King. When Anglicans, and Pastor Tim tells me that you do this too on Communion Sundays, when we receive the elements at our weekly Eucharist, the priest or the other server giving us the bread says, the body of Christ broken for you. They might just as well say, the body of King Jesus, broken for you and all the world. The Lamb of God is Christ the King. Calvary is so profoundly political. The cross disconnects 
power from coercion and force, from that battle of wills that forces some people to yield while others prevail. Instead, it connects power and authority to what we know as love. This is what I've referred to following St. Paul as the power made perfect. We are followers of Christ the King, so we have to take this seriously as our model of true power and authority too. It should shape how we think about politics and how we might conduct ourselves in our relations with others. And perhaps we can take up some of these things on Tuesday night. In the biblical vision, I've suggested, politics and government are less like a battlefield and more like a garden. Let me bring another New Testament voice into this part of the presentation. Last week, I was the lay reader at my church, All Saints Anglican in Amesbury, and the New Testament epistle appointed for last Sunday was the second chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Let's listen to just a few verses. When I came to you, Paul writes, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. The Corinthians needed two letters. In the second one, Paul was even more explicit about the same theme. Struggling over a personal failing of some undisclosed kind, he writes that God impressed on him that God's strength is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Once we start exploring this theme in the Scriptures, I suggest to you, it starts showing up everywhere, that basic Christian paradox that God rules by serving us and the world sacrificially. So the vision of politics I'm inviting you to embrace is one that is brought to life by our hope in Christ the King, who is the Lamb of God, who rules by serving and suffering. Now, to embrace such a vision, we certainly need to exercise faith. By faith, we know that Christ's kingdom endures. The kingdom of God, sown and growing in the world, there's that lovely imagery again, is not derailed by the outcome of a presidential election or a Supreme Court appointment. It's not derailed by the shabby self-seeking we often encounter in politics and elsewhere. It's not derailed by political corruption or other unoriginal sins. And our confidence can, must carry over into political engagement. When we do battle, it's not with our neighbors or with those who make us their enemies, personal or political, but while our enemies are not as St. Paul reminded the Ephesians, flesh and blood, there is warfare against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, of evil in the heavenly realms. We look to Jesus in the great mystery of the cross as the one who was won that battle. If we should think of the politics of this world then in the language of stewardship, if government is an essential, humble agency in the multifaceted task of cultivating human flourishing, there really can't be any thought of laying waste our political opponents. We're not going to agree on how government should cultivate human flourishing.
I emphasize, we aren't going to agree. But if our political process is to be a just one, we have to make space for our fellow citizens at the table of political deliberation, provide seats to accommodate as many of them as wish to come. Now, of course, it follows that Christian perspective on the purposes of politics and government isn't just for my or your personal edification, for reassurance at times of stress, like the end of the highly contentious presidential campaign of 2016, for example, or what promises to be just as contentious 2020 campaign. It carries over into political engagement. It equips us for political engagement. So in the balance of my time, I want to suggest something of the transformative potential of what we may reliably refer to by the title, Politics as Love. Politics as Love is well suited to address some of the more demanding challenges that tax our political and social resources. I have two contemporary examples. Neither is very uplifting, I'm afraid. I think of them as slow-motion catastrophes. They've been with us for some time already. They're becoming semi-permanent features of our world. They both feature dislocation. The one's global in reach, the other's part of our American struggle. The first of these is the growing number in our world of the displaced. One in every 113 people on Earth, by an estimate from the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, who are asylum seekers or migrants or refugees, doesn't justice require we urge our leaders to resist vigorously the fear-mongering that converts refugees into terrorists, try to think imaginatively about how we're going to set up our churches as tents in the mobile lives of the displaced. I don't know what else is capable of transcending the cultural attitudes probably all of us have inherited, the ones that say, hey, this is my place, I'm not sure about opening up to just anyone in order to cultivate a very different way of living with others. But if we look to the faith, we'll find that it supplies us with important resources. There is, first of all, the very deep down Christian reality that all of us are sojourners, resident aliens. That's me, literally. But uh, <laughs> this is the actual biblical status that fits us for responding to a crisis that's becoming the lived experience of a larger and larger percentage of our neighbors. When I look at descriptions of the early church, I'm struck by how well its outlook and ethos fits this lived experience. Christians, observe the philosopher Tertullian, are not distinguished, I'm quoting him, from the rest of mankind by country or language or customs. While they live in cities, both Greek and Oriental, and follow the customs of the country, they display the remarkable and confessedly surprising status about their own citizenship. They live in countries of their own as sojourners. They share all things as citizens. They suffer all things as foreigners. They pass their lives on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. Sometimes the sources of the wisdom, empathy, patience, suffering, and prudence that the growing numbers of the displaced call for lie much closer at hand than we recognize. There's much more that could be said, of course, but let me move to my second example. It comes a bit closer to home. My second slow-motion catastrophe refers to the gradual erosion of what sociologist Charles Murray called the founding virtues marriage, industriousness, honesty, religiosity, that have all but disappeared from the bottom 30% of the income scale. 
The situation he warned just a few years back is so dire, and I'm quoting him, it calls into question the viability of working class communities as a place for socializing the next generation. Now, Murray's something of a libertarian. He tells his story from the right of the center. His fellow sociologist, Robert Putnam from Harvard, tells the same story from the center left. In his 2015 book called Our Kids, Putnam describes communities once diverse in wealth, but not divided by it, which had internal tensions, racial and otherwise, but were still recognizably cohesive. Places where anyone's children were up to a point, everyone's children, the our kids of the title. Communities that are now divided along lines of wealth and status and neighborhoods and as an inevitable result, divided as to their access to opportunity. The story Putnam tells is one that cries out for this visible, for this biblical vision of humble stewardship. Recall the Center for Public Justice's way of putting it, government and civil society in fruitful relationship to serve the common good. Listen to Putnam for just a moment. Ultimately, growing class segregation across neighborhoods, schools, marriages, civic associations, workplaces, and friendship circles means that rich Americans and poor Americans are living, learning, and raising children in increasingly separate and unequal worlds, removing the stepping stones to upward mobility. College-going classmates or cousins or middle-class neighbors who might take a working-class kid from the neighborhood under their wing. Moreover, class segregation means that members of the upper middle class are less likely to have first-hand knowledge of the lives of poor kids and thus are unable even to recognize the growing opportunity gap. Kevin Dundalk, I referred to earlier, picks up the theme of a society more diverse than ever, but more divided than ever, divided by ignorance, and as a result, vulnerable to the power of partisanship. We're heading into an uncertain era of intensifying division, he says, reinforced by new opportunities to organize our lives so that we rarely have any meaningful interaction with people who don't share our commitments. The rhetoric of the current election he was talking about, 2016, strikes me as a clanging alarm bell of polarization, 21st century style. It's as if we live on an archipelago, not a continent. Putnam and Murray and the rest de describe communities and a society that are internally balkanized by wealth and choice so that it becomes less and less accurate to speak of neighborhoods or of having neighbors. If we live in islands of sameness, why would we be surprised that we don't know how to have a conversation with those on other islands? J.D. Vance, who grew up in the former steelmaking community of Middletown, Ohio, amidst family breakdown and departed jobs and drug abuse and many another challenge he describes in his work called Hillbilly Elegy, made his way to Yale Law School and eventually to Silicon Valley. He remarks that the latter is the most optimistic place he's ever encountered. He didn't say hopeful. And that almost no one in his workplace has any conception of what it's like to live in the deep pessimism in which he grew up because they don't know or interact with anyone from such a setting. Bridging all these gaps won't be easy, but the real diversity conversations have to begin here. What will be needed are the sort of virtues that the scripture refers to as fruits of the spirit. There's the gardening metaphor again. You're familiar with them. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want to keep insisting that these fruits are not just, well, nice, but have practical utility. 
and we're going to have to draw on their sustenance to undertake the tasks of building genuinely diverse communities and teaching the norms of principal pluralism gathering at the table in the public square. I was talking about political polarization recently and one of my Gordon colleagues observed that we can't expect the process, political process, to be better than we are when thinking about how to confront a slow motion catastrophe of dislocation and division in our culture, it's pretty clear we cannot look to the political process to be the main source of plastering over the cracks and devising the real solutions. It's out here in society the issues have to be addressed. And it's here that the humble stewardship that N.T. Wright speaks of and the doing of public justice the Center for Public Justice argues for can bring real resources to bear. As I noted earlier, Jesus did not just die for our sins, as Wright puts it. The good news is, that, is not only that God is sorting out the world, but that his rule is a different kind of rule entirely from those that give monarchs a bad name. And he goes on. When God is faced with the corruption of monarchy, he promises not to abolish monarchy, but to send a true king to rule with utter justice, making the poor and needy his constant priority. The human vocation to share that role, that task, is framed within the true justice and mercy of God himself. Any of us can, by the shape and direction of our own lives under God, our vocations, bring not just biblical perspectives into our communities and workplaces and our circles of friends, but biblical best practices too. If politics as love can transform our understanding of what true power and authority are, then we can decide by the careers we take up, the friends we keep, the churches we worship in, the neighborhoods where we choose to settle, to find ways to bridge the divide, and in so doing, tackle at least some of the root causes of a diverse but divided society. To sum up, a biblical vision for the nature and purposes of politics and government offers a robust set of resources, fruits of the spirit even, for tackling the problems of our diverse but divided culture. I want to turn back in closing to those looming 2020 elections by offering two or three bits of advice. If you're willing to take them from someone who as a resident alien here cannot vote in the election, and because he's lived outside his country for so long, can't vote there either. Um, first, when we get there later this year, we'll get there only too soon, we can leaven the snarling rhetoric at the top of the ticket by reading the party platforms. They're not exciting reading, but they will help. They're not a precise plan of action, but the victorious party will try to implement their platform. Deciding which platform comes closer to the direction you want the country to follow will leave you more informed and with a sense of the direction the two parties wish to take the country. It also makes sense to read up and down the ballot. Consider the congressional and the Senate races. Study the candidates you want to fill those offices. Consider and vote on the ballot questions. Those are important because there, your power is a direct lawmaking power, of course. And vote your conscience. There is no such thing as a wasted ballot if it expresses a genuine commitment, even to a candidate unlikely to win. Withhold your vote from someone who doesn't deserve it, but do participate. The only wasted ballot really is one that isn't cast at all. 
Here's a harder piece of advice. Extend grace to people who think differently about political matters than you do. Seek to understand people with whom you disagree and always treat them with dignity regardless of their political convictions. This is no mere mortal you're disagreeing with, but it's another one for whom Christ died. Let's bring that a little closer to home, if we may. Extend grace to people who think differently than you do, but are sitting behind you, in front of you, or right next to you in church. Remember, this is politics. I often think we don't get the sense of proportion right. This is about stewardship. This is about caring for one another and the created order in the here and now of this fallen, broken world. It's not about final solutions to ultimate issues, but usually about proximate solutions to issues that will reemerge from one season to the next. And last, remember that you're taking your bearings from the crucified Jesus, Christ the King, who calls us to reflect the image of God to our communities in the form of humble, generous stewardship. Those attitudes in our everyday relations, in our families, and yes, in the political process, can contribute to making all aspects of our stewardship both faithful and fruitful. Faith and hope and politics actually do belong in the same sentence. Will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, to know you as King, the one who's died and suffered for us, is great encouragement. May we draw on the resources that you provide us. May we lean on you in every way. And may we be faithful followers wherever you lead. And we ask this in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.